0: What we're seeing is that the children and youth, much like adults, feel the same way in the moment of care, both positive and negative. They like the opportunity to provide care, but it can be very, very stressful. And they're telling us that.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. According to the American Association of Caregiving Youth, 1.4 million kids between the ages of eight and 18 have caregiving responsibilities for a family member or a loved one. We have every indication that that is an underestimate. And while research supported by the ALS Association has shown that youth caregivers in our community derive a sense of pride from being able to help a parent or a loved one, caregiving can be a source of stress. The top concerns voiced by adult caregivers who participated in a recent ALS Focus survey include worries about their loved one's well-being, lack of time to take care of themselves, depression, and decreased participation in hobbies. This is in line with the potential negative consequences of youth caregiving, which include a decline in school performance, loss of time to participate in hobbies and other extracurricular activities, and emotional strain. That is why programs that support and nurture young caregivers are so important. They help to reduce and prevent the emotional and social harms caregivers face while the search for cures continues. So this week on Connecting ALS, we are looking at a specific potential harm to young caregivers, and that is lack of quality of sleep. And what can we do about it? Joining me to do so is Dr. Melinda Cavanaugh, a clinical social worker and associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Well, Dr. Kavanaugh, thank you as always for being with us here on Connecting ALS.
0: It's my pleasure. It's a pleasure to see you today.
1: Well, and it's always great to have you on because, you know, I I feel like kids are oftentimes the forgotten folks in our community, Uh, or maybe not forgotten, but not talked about as much. And you've done so much work kind of shining a light on the impact ALS has on kids. And I want to talk a little bit about a recent study that you were part of that looked into the impact ALS has on kids' sleep patterns and their sleep health. Uh, What led you to ask questions about the impact on sleep?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So it actually goes back quite a bit to my clinical practice. So I'm a professor in social work, but I'm also still a licensed clinical social worker. And many years ago when I was in practice, um, I would be doing home visits with families living with neurological disorders. And that's where I really started understanding this fairly complex and much more widespread issue of children and youth being caregivers. And at the time, kids would say very just off the cuff, you know, oh, I had a hard time getting to school today or, you know, I kind of slept through class. And I remembered that and that just kind of stuck in the back of my mind. And some of my earliest research really sought to understand what that was. So we asked a lot of qualitative questions about how caregiving influences school and attendance and performance in school. And so the qualitative data really supports the fact that kids would tell us Many, many stories about falling asleep in class and not being able to wake up for to go to school because they had been awake all night helping to care for their family member, their grandmother, their mother. So, you know, we had all this qualitative, this really rich qualitative data. And again, my my clinical experiences as well, you know, those two really came together to say, wait a minute, we don't, we don't know anything um, really you know, quantitatively or in any sort of a research-based protocol to help us just start to wrap our minds around what's happening with sleep. And it's so critical with children and youth because those are the rich developmental time periods in our lives, right? And so yeah. if, if our kids aren't sleeping, you know, their brains aren't developing, they're not really getting that rest and that ability to kind of refuel for the next day. So that's that's really where the where the seeds were planted.
1: So we have qualitative data, right? We have mm-hmm. we have anecdotes and a collection of anecdotes. I know just enough about this stuff to be dangerous. <laughs> but the study that we're here talking about today tries to put numbers behind that and have okay. that quantitative data that can really help us understand mm-hmm. what's going on. So, so what did you learn trying to quantify this?
0: So we've actually done two studies. Um, we did a really small feasibility study just trying to say, hey, no one's really tracked this. And kids who are caregivers, we know they're overwhelmed. They're a busy group. Um, uh, will they even wear some sort of device that helps us track you know, their movement and their activity? Will they complete a journal when they wake up in the morning letting, letting us know, you know, how well did you sleep? Did you sleep? Did you get up in the night to provide care for your uh, family member? And so our feasibility study, we had 20 kids um, evenly distributed between caregivers and non-caregivers so that we could try to start wrapping our minds around what is different about this experience in the caregiving kids versus their age and gender-matched non-caregiving kids. And what we found is that the caregiving kids had a much less stable and kind of more fragmented, if you will, sleep pattern. So it wasn't as robust. So even if the kids weren't getting up in the middle of the night to provide care, which many of them were, even if they weren't, their sleep wasn't sound. They were kind of disrupted and it was kind of fragmented. So if you can picture that what they were likely doing is doing a lot of tossing and turning, potentially doing a lot of um, kind of mental perseverating. And we know in our caregiving youth that they do worry quite a bit um, throughout the day while they're at school. Who's taking care of my mom or dad? How are they doing? Did they fall? Are they choking? So it makes perfect sense that that would be exhibited in their sleep patterns as well. The next thing that we wanted to understand was how is the act of care, right? So the in the moment of care, is that mentally disruptive? And then again, kind of the bigger picture are these kids sleeping, again, as consistently as we found in that small feasibility study, but what is it about the act of care itself that might be more stressful or might be um, more anxiety inducing that might then continue to contribute to this struggle with a sleep, um, kind of positive sleep pattern, if you will. And so that study is still ongoing, but currently we have found that We gave children and youth an app on their phone, and when they were in the moment of care, they got to tell us, I feel good, I feel stressed, I feel anxious, I like doing this, I don't like doing this. They got to tell us how they felt in that moment of care. And some of the interesting things is what we're seeing is that the children and youth, much like adults, Feel the same way in the moment of care, both positive and negative. They like the opportunity to provide care, but it can be very, very stressful. And they're telling us that. They're telling us that they feel positive about themselves, but about the care, they're tired. It can be very exhausting. It does stress them out. They use the word stress and they feel pretty overwhelmed about it. But at the same time, they like the positive opportunity to be a caregiver. So what that shows us is is children and youth are just as complex in their care experiences as adults are. To backtrack a moment, we know that all of our children and youth who are caregivers do all the same types of care tasks as adults do. And I get asked that a lot. And there are really, truly no care tasks that an adult does that a child or youth doesn't also do. So these are kids who are deeply involved in care. What we did find is that in the moment, and again, this is still some preliminary data that the the study isn't completed, but one of the interesting things we found is that the type of care does influence how they feel about it. So even though they might be stressed or anxious or worried about it, If it's kind of a basic care task, kind of, you know, I'm lifting or transferring, there's less of an emotional component to them. They might be overwhelmed about it, but they describe less feeling kind of like emotional or sad about it. It's the times when they are actually providing emotional care to their family member. So they're actually providing care that is in response to that emotion from their family member with ALS, that the youth are actually struggling with being able to manage their own positive mood, right? So let me, let me say that in, in another way. When they're meeting the emotional needs of their family member, their emotions are also kind of all over the map. And they're less kind of positive about that because they're trying to take care of the emotions of someone else, and they're less attuned to taking care of their own emotions, which I think is really interesting, particularly for children and youth who are really trying to figure out, you know, who they are and what are they doing and what is happening in their own lives. What that tells us, and again, preliminary data is that they need as much emotional support as we could possibly provide them. They need that hands-on care and the education and the training and the tasks that they're doing, but they also need to be able to say, hey, this is emotional and I want to be there and help my mom or dad, but I need someone to be there to help me. So I think when you said at the beginning that you know, our children and youth in these families, they do get overlooked. And it's its never an intentional thing. It's that um, ALS and other diseases similarly situated are very overwhelming and very complex. And we do spend a lot of time on the patient and the adult, which we should. But we do often forget that the youth are really deeply involved and need as much support as humanly possible.
1: You know, as you're saying that, it occurs to me that w- whether it's If it's stress, something stressful in my life, Mm -hmm. it's going to cause me to toss and turn and maybe have a restless night's sleep. But, you know, a big work project, I'm going to get through that eventually and things are going to go back to normal. Similar to meeting the emotional needs of someone as opposed to helping them, you know, do a project, I get how that's a little bit more emotionally draining. And I've had a little bit more time in life to figure out some coping mechanisms. Now you, you were touching on some of the support that can be there and I, I guess my question is, what does that support look like? How do we make sure that these kids have the tools that they need and the support that they need so that they're managing to get a good night's sleep and all the things that that Mm-mm. entails?
0: Well, the very first thing we can all do is acknowledge that they exist and acknowledge that they're providing the care that they provide. Kind of writ large as a society, if you will, we don't really recognize the care that children and youth play. We tend to either gloss over it or think it's just kind of no big deal. But if we all take a moment and ask the children and youth in our families how they're doing, are they helping to take care of somebody? What does that look like? How can we help them? what can we do? And sometimes it's just being that listening ear, just being that person that, that acknowledges that they exist and the things that they're doing are extraordinary and worthy of recognition and worthy of support. So it, it's a basic, basic thing, but I say this a lot, acknowledge them acknowledge those children and youth, give them an ear to talk to, and then develop some sort of a support program that is peer engaged. And the beautiful thing is I've seen over the years, you know, I have been doing this for a while and I've I've seen some really amazing programs coming out of not only the ALS Association and the different chapters and locations around the country, but also school-based programs, community-based programs that really try to put like with like together. So get as many caregiving kids together as you can. And they're going to sit and they're going to talk about like what that experience is like. And it's such a beautiful, normal thing to watch them do this because they can talk about feeding tubes and BiPAPs and gate belts in the most like nonchalant way. And they don't have any judgment. There's no stigma or shame associated with it because those other kids get it too. And, you know, it's, it's what, children and youth have told me every study I've ever done, they don't have enough peers that get what their life is like. And so anything that we can do, and we being the healthcare providers, social providers, nonprofit disease organizations, right? Anything that we can do that brings kids together to let them kind of connect and chat and build that cohesion. You know, one of the one of my other big projects that I have developed with a lot of support through the ALS Association is the ycare care program. And it's a day long modular program. We just did a beautiful version of it in Texas with the ALS Texas chapter in Texas Neurology, where we get kids together. They're all kids in caregiving roles and they learn how to do the skills correctly by those healthcare professionals who know ALS. But the really cool thing is that they all meet each other. And these kids, by the end of the day, with the exception of a sibling group, had never met each other. And they were all calling each other best friends. They were exchanging phone numbers. They were telling their parents they want to hang out with each other. And so, yeah, we were giving them the education and the tools and the skills. But really, we were building those those peer relationships. And so I think that we acknowledge them. We give them the respect that they deserve for the work and the engagement and the love that they show their family members. And then we provide support opportunities for them to build peer relationships so that they don't feel isolated and alone and that weird kid, which is a frequent response I get to my research.
1: And for anybody listening out there who wants to know, learn more about the experiences of kids listening with ALS, we will share a link in the show notes to Dr. Kavanaugh's tremendous series on ALS in youths, which is just amazing. So if you haven't had a chance to check those out, go to the show notes and find those. You mentioned trying to not feel like the weird kid, and that's... that. That makes me think of some other research that you're working on right now that you're you're partnering on, and and that is trying to get a sense of stigma in the mm-hmm. ALS community. Yes, what can you tell us about that research? Whether people have an opportunity to get involved, and what you're trying to drill down on there?
0: Yeah, absolutely, and this this is also a topic that um, has been in my world for over 20 years. You know, you work in neurological disorders, you're going to encounter stigmatizing feelings around, you know, your movement or your lack of movement or your need to use a wheelchair or your inability to communicate verbally. You know, these are things that have been part and parcel of my work for many, many years. But this particular project is actually in collaboration with my extraordinary colleagues in the Netherlands at the University of the Utrecht So one of my colleagues there, she is actually a postdoctoral fellow through the ALS Association. So she's very interested in mindfulness and understanding how mindfulness and self-compassion can really ease things like felt stigma or perceived stigma. And so it was like this really perfect connection because I'd seen it for so many years in my practice and I see it in all of... The data that I collect. And so what we've done is we've created a survey that anybody in any part of the entire world can complete. The only caveat is you do have to be able to read English. Uh, We do apologize for that, but it was too difficult to try to do it in too many other languages. So the survey is in English. It's for both patients and caregivers. So they each kind of complete their own separate one. And the reason why we want to understand is So much of the access to care or the ability to access care perhaps is often situated in how you feel about yourself living with this disease or how you feel about yourself as a caregiver trying to maneuver the world with someone living with ALS. And a lot of that has to do with stigma, either either my kind of personal perceived stigma or stigma that I that is overtly kind of presented to me in different situations. And if we can understand kind of what are some of the origins of that and how people feel about it, and what we as healthcare professionals can do to help break down those stigmatizing experiences and increase access our goal is really to look at better quality of life in both those patients and caregivers and i also do a lot of work in south africa with the motor neuron disease association down there and and that came up in our research as well you know people often feel very stigmatized and frequently they just don't know enough about the disease so you know the kind of stigma from others is because they have ignorance about it and so they make a lot of assumptions and so it's i think a really important study that It has some very, very clear and very powerful clinical implications, regardless of where you are in the world. So we certainly do hope people complete it. We've already had some amazing, amazing responses. And, you know, I know you have the link to it. So, you know, if folks can get onto the link and fill it out, we would be incredibly grateful.
1: And we will share a link to that opportunity in the show notes. And it is we who are incredibly grateful, Dr. Kavanaugh, for your time this week. Uh, thanks again for being here, sharing all your insights and all that you do for the community.
0: Oh, you're very, very, very welcome. It's always my pleasure.
1: Thank you again to my guest this week, Dr. Melinda Kavanaugh, and thanks to you for listening. If you like this show, tell a friend. And please find time to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. As a quick note, the youth guides that Dr. Kavanaugh created in partnership with the ALS Association have recently been translated into Spanish and are in the works to be translated into other languages. So, exciting news that her important work is being shared at a global scale. Nice work, Dr. Kavanaugh, and thanks again for all that you do. We will be sharing links to those guides and to other resources to support youth caregivers in the show notes. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Race Car, post-production by Garrett Tiedemann, production management by Gabriella Montaquin, supervised by David Hoffman. That's going to do it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon.